let's talk. We Trent on Nelson. Happy days are here again. It's fun to have fun. We try to have fun with whoever we're speaking with. But today's guest, we don't have to try to have fun with him because we just always have fun. Whenever we have a nice chat with Mr. Don Hanrahan, he is the political director-elect over at the Sierra Club, the Sangamon Valley group of the Sierra Club. He comes onto the program oftentimes with Nick Dodson of that very same group. But Nick is not here today. It is just Don. Don, You're th- stuck with me. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> there are worse things that I could think of. Such a pleasure to have you on this morning, Don. Thanks, Trent. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we love good company, good friends. You've become somewhat of a regular because we regularly need to discuss the environment. And who else do you call to discuss the environment but an environmental lawyer? Sounds good to me. That's my new role, I guess, since before I retired. Uh, I mostly did disability claims and appeals, but now I've taken on a new role. It's not full time and I'm loving it. Well, you know, it is in many instances better to work as the 15th century peasant did. He got to like work 18 hours, which sounds terrible, but he kind of did it at his leisure. Yeah, right. Ended up working far fewer days than people do today. This is, this is accurate. Yes, the the, uh, the Catholic vacation calendar was pretty epic. It was something like 150 days a year. Well, you got a lot of saints, right? And they could have given you every day off because they're like hundreds of saints, right? But a lot of times they consolidate, give a couple saints one day, right? I mean, because right, right. you can't have off every day. We got yeah, right. We need society stuff. Okay, Don, we could talk about this literally for hours. We do sometimes. But, but let's move on to Earth and to the environment. Hunter Lake, last time you were here with us, Nick was here with us as well. And we spoke about the document that a Freedom of Information Act claim from a concerned citizen from from the United States Environmental Protection Agency to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers concerning the U.S. EPA's perception of the Hunter Lake project. Yes, we did. And their perception is that the permit ought to be denied. That was the perception that we read, that we spoke about. For that interview, for all of our prior interviews, you can find that, all the places where you can find the podcast, especially on our home playlists. But, Don... We mentioned it during those discussions. Hunter Lake, it was not over because of this recommendation from the U.S. EPA. And in the week since all of this news broke, what can you tell us in terms of the response from CWLP, as well as what are we thinking is the future of Hunter Lake? Sure. And as we pointed out the last time, the U.S. EPA, a very powerful environmental agency whose commission is to study these things and to make recommendations is and it actually is the ultimate arbiter of the Clean Water Act in the United States. But they're not the deciders right now. The Army Corps of Engineers is issuing what's called a Section 404 permit to impound waters of the United States. EPA is saying you can't do an impoundment here and build something that doesn't comply with the Clean Water Act. The Army Corps doesn't have to do what the U.S. EPA recommends. They can still issue a permit conditioned on the U.S. EPA's sister agency, Illinois EPA, issuing what's called a clean water permit, a Section 401 permit. So we're not done unless the Army Corps says we're done at this point. And we pointed that out the last time, but it's significant that the U.S. EPA has weighed in. And the comments from City Water Light and Power are such that you would think, oh, well, there were 400 other comments. This is just one of many comments, like, Joe Blow, who wants to put his boat on, the, on a new lake and go fishing, has the same value as the U.S. EPA. No, that's not right. This is very significant. You've heard it here first, folks. The U.S. EPA does have a bit more power in their statement than, than, than us individuals, but that's probably a reasonable thing, right? I it, mean, they're the experts on the Clean Water Act. They, they, are they the, were commissioned to do exactly that in 1973, so that's, that's where we're at. Commissioned? Uh, yes. Thank you, Don. Uh, many people don't know 
that uh, the reason why Dick Nixon is actually considered by many to be the last New Deal president is because he is responsible for giving us the EPA and the CPA. Yeah, Richard Nixon um, was considered a, a kind of a far-right conservative yeah. back in the day. And yet we have the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the EPA. We He, he created le- the Legal Services Corporation for legal aid, many things, uh, ex- expanded Medicare. Um, so... Uh, this is how far we've swung, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Dick was a fascinating individual. Um, many people also don't know that he is considered to be um, one of the uh, greatest presidential poets in our country's history, along with the likes of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Dick has a a book of poetry. I had no idea. And it is very good, <laughs> believe it or not. It is it is disconcertingly good. Um, so again, talk of the town, Trent Nelson. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson here with Don Hanrahan. And what's great about Don Hanrahan is even though we are here to talk about the environment, we're here to talk about Hunter Lake, we're here to talk about Dolman, we're here to talk about CO2 pipelines, but we can also talk about the off days of 15th century peasants, and we can talk about the poetry musings of one Richard Milhouse Nixon. (laughs) And a lot of people don't know that middle name, Milhouse. A lot of people don't know. He was the Quaker president, the California Quaker, and uh, again, Fascinating history. In 57, he actually tried to change the rules uh, of the Senate as vice president to conclude that at the start of every session, um, the heads of the Senate could change the rules of it. And by doing that, he intended to get rid of the filibuster, um, the filibustero, as it were. Uh, and and Lyndon Johnson stopped him. Ha, Lyndon Johnson awesome. stopped him because he wanted to pass civil rights legislation through the Democrats instead of the Republicans. Uh, so... Again. Very interesting, but I, I think of him as uh, the clean water president and uh, signed the Clean Water Act, which created the EPA. History is complicated, and so we have to discuss these things. You're quite right, Don. Uh, Richard Nixon is, as has been said by others, the last New Deal president. He gave us two of our most important um, institutions, federal the clean, institutions. The clean, the clean Water Act has been very effective for us right here in Sangamon County, as a matter of fact. Um, How? Because the Sangamon River used to be an open sewer. Honestly, it was a pit. You're telling me it was the River Thames? Basically, yeah. It was maybe even worse. Um, but it's under the Clean Water Act, it's been cleaned up. Decatur's sewage treatment plant, our own sewage treatment plants, everything that was dumped in the Sangamon. And as a result, we have uh, fish population, native fish populations, native mussel populations, which now are backing up into the creeks where they used to be, like Horse Creek and Lick Creek and Sugar Creek. So. Uh, and, and they brought us, uh, unfortunately, buffalo gnats, which uh, bother people in the spring, and they didn't used to when I was a kid. The reason that they're back is because the water is clean enough for those things to breed in. Well, you get some victories and you get some trouble. But we uh, were always concerned about the Sangamon Valley, and that's an integral part of what they're trying to wreck with Hunter Lake. And that's part of why uh, I'm such an opponent of Hunter Lake. So, Don... We spoke about how it has been perceived by some of the responses that CWLP has made since the U.S. EPA um, pronouncement was uncovered by the Freedom of Information Act. There was a report recently in, uh, in WICS, I believe, no, that uh, stated that um, that CWLP was in fact trying to move full steam ahead with this Hunter Lake project, uh, even with this uh, very pointed recommendation from the U.S. EPA to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. What is the explanation for um, for CWLP seemingly ignoring environmentalists who have said the same thing as the U.S. EPA? 
has now said, is on record as having said, right. it seems as though everyone is is against this in terms of providing reasons, right? Uh, legitimate statistical analyses, and yet it doesn't seem to matter. Trent, it doesn't, and we've been arguing with them for many, many years, decades, uh, and they don't listen. We tell them, you can't just start pouring concrete. You gotta get a permit. So, of course, they applied for a permit and said, we wanna build a dam, basically. And the Army Corps of Engineers said, well, you've got to do an environmental impact study, and it can't just say, we want to build a dam, here's the reasons why. So back to the drawing board, they came up with reasons. Um, the, the, the articulated reasons were that we're going to run out of water in a 100-year drought. So uh, then the, the Army Corps said, well, that's still not good enough. You have to tell us what the alternatives are. So they did that. They went back to the drawing board, came up with alternatives like uh, using the Sangamon River Valley wells, for example, or the Havana Lowland wells or something like that. They, they came back with four or five alternatives. And then uh, what they did was they sized them all to meet the same water production as the original proposed Hunter Lake. And we again said, foul, you have to define what, how much water you need and then size the alternatives accordingly. And when they did that, back when they went back to the drawing board, they came back and guess what? Every alternative was cheaper and less environmentally destructive. But they said, well, on the basis of the number of gallons of water that can be produced per dollar, it's actually cheaper. And, you know, our response was, but that's like going to the grocery store for your family with a semi-truck. Yeah, it's cheaper to buy 400 pounds of potatoes per, per potato, but who's going to eat them all? You know, we don't need that much, right? So... Uh, that's where it was. And then there were there's other problems, of course, the phosphorus issue being the biggest. You heard it here first, folks. Do not buy hundreds of pounds of <laughs> potatoes. You will have to eat them all. It will be difficult. Indeed. Okay. Now, with that being said, Don, we have buffalo gnats again. We have mussels. We have fish. We we have Hunter Lake proposals. But we also have phosphorus issues, do we not? Big, big problem. Now, those bodies of water, the ones that we currently have and are trying to uh, maintain in positive settings... I am no environmental scientist, Don, but as an environmental lawyer, could you could you confidently say that getting rid of phosphorus in our water bodies would help to ensure a cleaner and safer water for not only animals, but for humans? Yes, absolutely. See, one of the big problems with the phosphorus coming into Lake Springfield, for example, is that it sits in the sediment and the lake overturns in the fall and brings that sediment up, exacerbating the problem of the phosphorus, which is in the bottom. And phosphorus is coming in to the through the two creeks that feed Lake Springfield, which is Sugar Creek and Lick Creek, and that comes from agricultural land. This, see, this was not a problem in the 1930s when Lake Springfield was built. It became a problem when uh, agricultural practices became what they call modern agriculture practices, which is dumping phosphorus and nitrates on fields. And it washes out because the, there are inadequate berms or structures to keep it from going into ditches, which go into little streams, which go into bigger streams, which go into creeks, which go into rivers, and so on. As If the water is flowing, phosphorus is less of a problem. It's when you impound it that it becomes a problem. And when it becomes a problem, it causes algae blooms. Some of them are toxic. And you know, we've got to get that stuff under control. And who is responsible for the process of dredging Lake Springfield? Unfortunately, nobody. The City Water, Light, and Power has publicly stated that we're going to deal with that. We're going to deal with it. We're going to dredge. But what they tell the Army Corps of Engineers is we're never going to dredge it till at least 2065. We're not going to touch it. And, you know, when you when you try to pin them down, they say it makes no sense to dredge until we get control of the watershed where the phosphorus and mud is coming in from. One of the interesting things about Hunter Dam is that they proposed a method that's not been tested. 
to control phosphorus coming in through the watershed, and they're called gabion baskets. And, you know, if they really worked, it would be a boon to getting phosphorus under control in, in rivers and creeks, eventually to the Gulf of Mexico, as a matter of fact. But these things haven't been tested. They've been modeled, and we've tried to get the modeling data. They gave us the study that said it'll remove about 50% of the phosphorus coming into Hunter Lake, which, by the way, is not enough. There will still be 2.5 times the level of phosphorus in Hunter Lake than is permissible. So, Don, is it safe to say that an innovation such as the one that you have said they've modeled for with these baskets? Yes. Okay. Would you say that were they to work, their usage would be more adequate post-dredging? Yes. So, absolutely. So, and, you, and, you, so you clean the phosphorus and the nitrates out of the lake, and yeah. then you put these baskets to ensure that more isn't flowing into the lake. Well, supposedly. Allegedly. But the ultimate solution is the agriculture industry is the only unregulated industry uh, for pollution control. Right. They can pollute freely, pretty much. So that's the ultimate solution. And there are what's called best management practices. And to get best management practices done on Lake Springfield, the cost is hundred and something like $143 million. But what they put in for Hunter Lake costs for best management practices is something like $20 million. So it's hard for me to believe that they're going to get it under control. We tried to get, they've given us, through Freedom of Information Act, they've given us copies of the results of the studies, the modelings that they did. They did supposedly four modelings, but they will not give us the modeling. They're claiming it's a preliminary preliminary information, preliminary draft exempt under FOIA. And I don't know yet what we're going to do about that, but CWLP will not give us the underlying data. So how can we even understand how they came up with the reduction that's not sufficient enough to meet the Clean Water Act, but does reduce it. Reduction is important, and if it does reduce, it should be deployed everywhere. We need to reduce it, but we need to get it down. The, the standard is 0.05 milliliters per liter or something like that. And, and what these gabion baskets, can, along with other practices, can get it down to is about uh, 2.5, still quite a bit more than the standard. You heard it here first, folks. It's like when you're in school and the teacher says, show us your work. Right. We, exactly. We'd like to see your work. We'd like to see how you arrived at this why, issue. Why would you not give that to, to the public? How else can we verify the data that they're giving us? And I did miss, I, I misspoke. With their controls and the gabion baskets, it's not 2.5. It's something like 1.2. But it's still more, it's like two and a half right. times what they're allowed to have. Let's talk with Trenton Nelson here with Don Hanrahan, the political director-elect of the, the Sangman Valley Group of the Sierra Club, talking to us about Dick Nixon, about the EPA, about Hunter Lake, about 15th century peasants' work schedules. But we have more before Don leaves. There are more environmental things to talk about. Now, now Don, the CO2 pipelines, we just recently heard that, that one company has withdrawn the permits. Yeah, the Navigator Pipeline. The Navigator Pipeline, but we have reports that there are other pipelines in the works that, that companies are trying to push through across the state. Yeah, these are the product of the drive for carbon capture and storage, basically. Right, right. So they're going to keep cropping up, especially because as part of the deal that was cut for the, the clean energy programs of the federal government, carbon capture and storage was added in. In my view, this is just a way to perpetuate the operation of fossil fuels, uh, coal, and gas specifically, but also ethanol. And the, these pipelines, they're, they're horribly dangerous. They're, they're under three times the pressure that natural gas is under. And when it's released, it's carbon dioxide. You cannot breathe. Cars can't operate. It's a big deal. Pipelines break. That's what they do. They break. They have to be maintained. And when they break, 
and there's a little oil spill somewhere, it can be contained. When it's a, a CO2 pipeline right next to a community, you're going to likely kill people. So it's a big deal, and we, we're definitely opposing this. Don, do you think that many of the CO2 pipelines that companies are propositioning, perhaps across Illinois, perhaps across other states, do you think that there is there is any impetus because of the lack of regulations currently in place by the federal government? Yeah, they're state. Right. They've not built these things before. They've not built these things to standards that can withstand that degree of pressure. And the pipeline operators are saying, oh, we got this covered. Uh, we promise. Well, I don't know. Are these companies going to be around 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now? And are they going to keep monitoring our storage, which is the biggest problem? Transporting it is one problem. They can certainly capture the carbon, no doubt about it. The problem is transporting it and storing it for decades. And it's sort of like you wind up with the same problem you have with nuclear power, which is we should have figured out what to do with this waste before we created it. And now we're stuck running around trying to bury it in places and hoping it stays there for a half million years. That seems unreasonable, Don. Burying our problems, not an effective strategy for fixing them, is it? No, it's not, especially when it's a private entity that has to make a profit. If they have to pay money to fix something, they go away. They go into bankruptcy. They, they leave us with the bill. That's the problem with coal in southern Illinois. It's the problem with nuclear waste, and it's going to be the problem with carbon capture and storage. Just like the nuclear problem, it would likely be useful to have some preconceived purpose for that waste, some way in which it could be utilized, which, of course, we're not very good at discerning. And the same might be said about carbon dioxide, right? Instead of having underground caverns filled with barrels of potentially horrifyingly dangerous gas, should probably figure out something to do with it. And I don't know what you do with it, except sequester it somehow. And, the, you know, I, I've talked about those kinds of problems. Another huge problem with carbon capture and storage is it consumes immense amounts of energy and water to make it work. And it's so costly when instead of running a coal plant to produce the power to capture the carbon and transport it in pipelines with pumps and dump it in a storage place, we could have clean energy for half the price with solar, wind, you know, and, and that's where we're at. I just don't understand it. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson here with political director elect Don Hanrahan of the Sangamon Valley Group of the Sierra Club. We have spoken about Hunter Lake. We've spoken about all of these wonderful things. Before we let Don go, we have to also ask him about the Dalman power plant, about Dalman units 31, 32, 33, the precipitator, as well as the chimney. Don, at previous city council meeting, the council passed an ordinance that would allow for a local professional services group to start putting out RFQs and RFPs for companies to start bidding on on the phasing out and dismantling of the Dalman units 31, 32, 33. And of course, we know that that's on the back of an ordinance passed uh, several weeks ago concerning a survey to see what will be next for a Dalman power plant. Right. And so we're very happy that the city's taking action to take down 31, 32, and 33. Um, and it's got to be done carefully and professionally because of, you know, the, I mean, they've got to make sure that when they knock it down that they're not blowing all kinds of dust and chemicals accumulated there over into the neighborhoods that surround that area. As we know that that has previously been a problem. Yes, indeed. Um, and they, they've been slapped with a lawsuit by the attorney general's office for that. Uh, so we, we encourage and applaud the efforts to do it very professionally and carefully. So that's good news. The bad news is that they're pursuing switching over uh, Dalman 4 to natural gas, which is a misnomer. It's methane gas. Uh, methane is the worst 
greenhouse gas, one of the worst greenhouse gases. Not so much when you burn it. It's in extracting it and transporting it that it escapes into the atmosphere. And um, so kudos for burning methane. It's, it's better than coal, but extracting it is the problem. And it creates more greenhouse gases than it saves, as a matter of fact. So, and, and to double down on fossil fuels instead of a laser focus on clean energy is a disservice to the ratepayers and to the community. As we discussed on a previous iteration of, of, our, of our chats, Don, to look to convert coal to natural gas um, at a time currently, right, which um, extrapolated over the course of the succeeding decades, would not necessarily net a return on that investment until, I believe you said, 20, 2060, 2050, no, 2060. It's, it's uh, 2045. 2045. And so, Just in know, time to convert to a renewable source of energy. Right. And and we're already behind the eight ball on renewables. We're five years out from the integrated resource plan. We need a new one going forward so that an independent entity can assess this and say, here's the direction you need to be going. And I'm almost 100% confident that an, any independent person, any independent entity that knows the business would say, Investing in fossil fuels is probably a bad idea. And we have to, we still owe, I don't know, $250, $300 million on Dalman 4. We got to recover that before 2045. And if you add to that debt another pile of debt to convert it to gas, what are we doing to the ratepayers? We're going to end up with a stranded asset, even more money in the hole than we are now. Hopefully, we can get that thing paid off before it has to shut down. Honestly, that's the best for the ratepayers. so if we could, if we can build, start building capacity now with solar and wind, and I'm not talking about buying it from a third party, I'm talking about building it. When they talk about solar at CWLP, they're talking about, it seems to me that they're talking about getting it from a third party and it's much cheaper to build it out for right. CWLP to build it out. That's where we're at. It's a matter of what's best for not only the ratepayers, Don, but for the environment, right? That, that, proper, that proper balance of I don't want to pay the most amount of money that I possibly can, but I also would like to be able to breathe clean air for the succeeding decades. Right, and we need to take care of the mess that's already been created with the ash pits and the cleaning all that up. And they are, they're working on it, but their strategy is to cap it in place when in fact that's going to cause further problems down the road with, with groundwater um, and so on. And so we really like to have those ash pits removed. Got ash pit issues, have phosphorus bloom potentials, have CO2 leakage. There's a lot of stuff that we have to be concerned with as it relates to the creation of sustainable, positive infrastructure. And here we are, you know, over the last 40 years, other communities are removing dams. Other communities are switching to clean energy. And here we are talking about building a dam to impound more pollution and to then double down on fossil fuels. It makes no sense. One word, Don. Malarkey. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of malarkey about. Unfortunately, Trent, there's also a lot of potential harm in terms of costs. We've got to deal with the phosphorus coming into the lake. That's 143 million bucks. We've got to get the phosphorus that's in there, out of there with all the mud and restore 20% of Lake Springfield's capacity. We're talking about another 150 million. We've got 200 miles of leaky 70 plus year old water mains that are losing almost 20% of the treated water. And that's a million dollars a mile. These are huge infrastructure. They're not glamorous. They're, they're, they're not glamorous issues like a pretty lake, right? They're things that, that we have to do. And they're huge costs looming that we need to address. We don't need to add to the pile another uh, 200, the actual value is $258 million for Hunter Lake. We don't need that. 
when one has a serviceable car and it it has wear and tear on it, it develops dings, scratches, blemishes, wear on the internal parts, it would not usually be recommended to simply purchase another vehicle. Most individuals would say we should fix this one, and then if we have money left over, we'll purchase another one once we have the one that we've already gotten taken care of. And it seems to me that while lakes and new bodies of water are, as you noted, romantic and glamorous, there are plenty of issues that we could uh, dig our teeth into, spend our money on, that would material, materially benefit the entire community and region before we get into other things like what we're talking about. And Lake Springfield is a jewel. You know, don't get me wrong. I love Lake Springfield. Where they went wrong building Lake Springfield was privatizing it. And we need to get some of that back. And we need to create more community access at Lake Springfield and, and extend recreation in Lake Springfield. Then we can have immense opportunity for land-based recreation and the 8,000 acres of land that the city owns, they acquired for Hunter Lake. Well, Don, this has been a fantastic discussion. I, I lived in Las Vegas for, for several years and I live by Lake Mead, which is the largest man-made lake, I believe, in North America. And something I've noticed that I think probably stands for another another discussion of ours, but there seems to me to be certain inherent dangers with man-made bodies of water because while we understand the process of creating bodies of water, we don't necessarily understand the creation of tides in those bodies of water, right? So Lake Mead is the, also the most dangerous lake in the country. Right. More people die on Lake Mead every year than any other body of water. And the question is why? Well, because there's a, it's aggressive. And I think that, you know, when we, we obviously understand why Lake Mead is not open for recreation, right? It, it requires more vigilance when we try to have fun on man-made bodies than perhaps it does when Earth has made them itself. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, I look at things like Lake Mead and, and Lake Springfield, and I think the 20th century was when we created a water infrastructure for the whole country. And the 21st century is going to be taking care of it cleaning it up, reducing what we use. And we've been very good so far at reducing what we use. Springfield's an outlier. The amount of water consumed per capita is higher than other places, and it's still going down. The, the retail water sales have gone down 14% in the last nine years. And our population is probably twice what it was, you know, the number of people being served by CWLP, CWLP water is twice what it was when this lake was conceived. Hunter Lake. And the population has grown that much, but water use is the same. How can that be? Because of federal water standards. Right. And this is something that's going to continue bearing fruit as we go forward and as we continue to learn how much more we can squeeze out of conservation in order to, to reduce the need for more supply. Other cities have done this, and they've saved billions of gallons of water by having retrofit campaigns and things like that. So it can be done. You heard it here first, folks. Our grandparents and great-grandparents, they created the water infrastructure that generations have benefited from. But it is up to us and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to maintain and refine these processes because we have not done the best job we could in maintaining them, uh, in developing them. We're making progress. The thing about progress is, folks, it never comes fast enough for, for a lifetime that only lasts 75 to 85 years. So we need to push harder. I'm getting towards the end of mine, Trent. Uh, it makes it... I thought it would always make it seem less urgent. It makes it more urgent to get this done. Don Hanrahan, political director-elect over at the Sierra Club. Over at the Sierra Club, the Sangman Valley group of the Sierra Club. Nick Dodson was not here with us today, but it didn't matter. We had a great time with our wonderful friend, Don. Don, thank you for coming and explaining the environment to our community. We appreciate it. Thank you, Trent. I've always enjoyed coming here, and I did certainly today. It's good to have good folks like that that you can chat with. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson. Go enjoy the nature and... Think to yourself, how can I ensure that the future will get to enjoy it too?